Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques Senior Editor, Tristan Free, and in this episode, we'll be covering microbiome profiling, why it's important, the techniques used to complete it, and how each is best suited to different applications. My guest today, providing the insight for these key questions, is Annabelle Damerum, microbiome R&D scientist at Zymo Research. Annabelle, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Tristan. It's a real pleasure to be here. Coming up on the episode, understand why the microbiome has become such a point of interest in the last decade. And research has highlighted how microbes are associated with even training our immune system, aiding our digestion, regulating serotonin production, and therefore can impact our mood and our happiness. So the list really is endless. Find out some of the key applications of microbiome profiling. Then in animals, there's the investigation into the rumen microbiome and how changing the diet of cows can maybe remodel the microbiome and ultimately reduce methane production, which is really important in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And discover some emerging new fields of microbiome research. So the vaginal microbiome is quite fascinating because unlike other well-studied body sites like the gut, where microbiome diversity is generally thought to be favourable and promote health, the opposite is believed for the vaginal microbiome. And Jacques Ravel at the University of Maryland has published a seminal study where they described how most women have microbiomes that are dominated by just one lactobacillus species. But there's this fifth group which has a more diverse microbiome comprised of these anaerobic microorganisms. So firstly, I guess as a brief overview, microbiome describes the composition of a microbial community in a specific environment. So be that the soil, the gut or wastewater. But can you tell us a bit more about why microbiomes are of such interest to the research community at the moment and why profiling them is important? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I think a key reason really why it's been important to profile microbiomes is that in doing so, it's really allowed us to shift our belief that microbes are solely agents of, you know, nasty infectious diseases and sort of moving away from seeing microbes as germs and really leading to a paradigm shift in how we view microbes. So it's now widely accepted that any host, whether it be a human, an animal or a plant, and their associated microbes should really be considered as this inseparable functional unit that's really co-evolved together and that microbes have many essential roles. So humans, for example, house trillions of microorganisms. And whilst the traditional idea that microbial cells outnumber our own cells 10 to 1 has actually been challenged recently, it's still believed that we have as many microbial cells living on us as we do human cells. So that's pretty incredible. And to answer why the field of microbiome research is of such interest and has rapidly grown in the last decades, I think this is really because we're starting to appreciate the diverse impacts that these microbes have. So billions of dollars have been invested in microbiome research and initiatives like the Human Microbiome Project and the Earth Microbiome Project have aimed to really analyze the profiles of microbes of thousands of samples collected from different human body sites and diverse environmental habitats. So just as one example, the human gut microbiome has been a highly active field of research over the last few decades. And it's revealed strong associations between dysbiosis or changes in the microbiome profile with various diseases and disorders. So not only those associated directly with the gut, like irritable bowel syndrome, for example, but also metabolic diseases like cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes and obesity. 
And research has highlighted how microbes are associated with even training our immune system, aiding our digestion, regulating serotonin production, and therefore can impact our mood and our happiness. So the list really is endless. So what are some of the key applications of microbiome profiling? What is it that researchers are looking to find? Some of the applications I find really interesting are those that link our diet and our lifestyle to our gut health. So Justin Sonnenberg's lab at Stanford University is world leading in research on how diet impacts gut microbial diversity. And this has suggested that typical Western diets that are high in fat and processed foods and low in plant fiber can negatively impact the gut microbiome. So there's been much research aimed at trying to define what the healthy microbiome is. And I even identify microbes that are beneficial and can be taken as supplements called probiotics, which is now a billion dollar industry. And so another rapidly emerging application is that of consumer and wellness testing for gut health. So companies like Zoe are offering gut health tests where they profile your gut microbiome and also measure other things like blood sugar levels and provide you with feedback on bespoke dietary changes that you can make to try to improve your gut health. Then in animals, there's the investigation into the rumen microbiome and how changing the diet of cows can maybe remodel the microbiome and ultimately reduce methane production, which is really important in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So some other important applications of microbiome profiling are in areas like pathogen surveillance. So in hospitals or wastewater to monitor foodborne pathogen outbreaks like sugar toxin producing E. coli in our food production systems and monitoring antimicrobial resistance prevalence, which can then help to inform effective antibiotic treatment. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard of the the remodeling of cow sort of gut microbiomes to try and improve the sort of methane emission there. It's a really interesting application that I wasn't aware of. And so to actually try and conduct this profiling, what are some of the techniques that researchers are using? Can you give us a sort of an overview of the working principle of the kind of different techniques that researchers use? Yeah, so there are three techniques that are most widely deployed to study the microbiome. And these are targeted sequencing, shotgun metagenomic sequencing, and then metatranscriptomic sequencing. So targeted sequencing is where primers are used to amplify a specific genomic region by PCR, which is then sequenced. These are generally taxonomic marker genes. So a marker gene is selected because they're universally present, but they display uh, sufficient sequence variation that they can then be used to distinguish organisms. So the 16S and the ITS markers are typically used for this purpose, the 16S being the RNA component of the small subunit of the prokaryote ribosome. And this is used to sequence bacteria and archaea. And the ITS region, which is the internal transcribed spacer, which is the region between the small and large uh, ribosomal subunit genes, and that's used to sequence fungi. So these genes have these hypervariable regions, which can be used to distinguish different taxonomic ranks, flanked by these highly conserved regions within the genes that can allow us to then target primers to that site. So, for example, the 16S gene is about 1,500 base pairs, and it contains these nine different hypervariable regions. Because of the read length constraints of short read sequencing technologies, generally we sequence only a portion of that gene, and some of the popular regions are called the V4V5 or the V1V3 regions. So I was going to sum up with saying targeted sequencing can answer the question of which microbes are present and at what relative proportions. With 
shotgun metagenomic sequencing, instead of sequencing just part of a single gene, we perform untargeted sequencing of all the DNA in the sample. So this includes all the bacteria, archaea, fungi, viruses, etc. So an important distinction here is that because we're sequencing total genomic DNA, we can generally achieve a higher taxonomic resolution. So we can identify tax to the species and sometimes even the strain level. And we can also profile the functional potential of the community. So, for example, we can annotate the sequencing reads to determine which genes are present, which can then tell us what metabolic functions may be being performed by that microbial community. And I use the term may be being performed here because while certain genes might be present in the community, metagenomic sequencing can't tell us and can't really distinguish between which genes are just present and which genes are actively being expressed. So this is then where metatranscriptomics comes in. And this is essentially sequencing all the RNA in the sample as opposed to the DNA. So this is basically like RNA-seq of the microbiome. And because then we're sequencing the transcriptome, we can see which genes are functionally active in the community. Okay, fantastic. And then what are some of the sort of pros and cons of using those different techniques? Yeah, so I kind of hinted at some of these already, but I would say that targeted approaches are beneficial because they are the most affordable. And you can also, because you're only sequencing a, a small portion of a gene, you can multiplex a lot of your samples. So you can combine multiple samples into one sequencing run, which then further lowers the cost. The cons of such an approach are that really the inherent biases in PCR amplification methods. So using the 16S gene as an example, we mentioned earlier that there are those hypervariable regions. And these regions may not amplify all taxa with equal efficiency, for example, due to inherent properties in the DNA sequence, like differential primer binding efficiency or the GC nucleotide base content. Also, certain regions may demonstrate different degrees of variability between taxa. So this can affect the taxonomic resolution we can achieve. We also can't infer much about the functional potential of the community. So it can tell us what's there, not really what it's doing. Shotgun metagenomic sequencing gives us this higher resolution and functional profiling with the trade-off of the higher cost, but it captures all walks of life, so bacteria, archaea, fungiviruses, phages we've discussed. This is particularly useful in certain applications where we don't always know what we're looking for or maybe what's causing a disease. Also with shotgun, the PCR bias that we observe with targeted sequencing is avoided. And additionally, if we sequence to a high enough depth, we can also assemble genome sequences from this data, which is useful for certain applications. Some cons are because we are sequencing all the genomic DNA in the sample, depending on the sample type, the DNA of the host can contaminate the sample, which can waste sequencing efforts if we don't deal with that host DNA before we go to sequencing. And it also doesn't give us any information on which organisms are alive or active in the sample. So we're sequencing everything, whether it's alive or dead. So we, we may want to distinguish between what's actually living and active and what's just there. So this is where metatranscriptomic analysis is beneficial. However, it is the most expensive. And we also have the issue of host mRNA contamination, like we have with host DNA contamination with shotgun. Also, metatranscriptomics doesn't necessarily tell you who is there and what abundance, as microbes can be present but be inactive or dormant. So you would have to pair this with either shotgun or targeted sequencing to paint a more complete picture. Okay, fantastic. And then so taking into account some of those pros and cons, can you give some pointers for which techniques are best suited for different applications? 
Yeah, so targeted sequencing really has the greatest utility when you just want to know what is there, what microbes are present and at what relative abundance. And you're not really interested in that finer resolution, you know, at the species or strain level. Shotgun then is shotgun sequencing is useful for picking what genes are present and what functions the community may be undertaking. For example, if you wanted to know if a community possessed a certain antibiotic resistance gene, you could answer this with shotgun sequencing. Generally, this approach can achieve this higher taxonomic resolution than targeted sequencing approaches. And depending on the depth of the sequencing, we can assemble genomes, which can be useful if that's your application. Something shotgun metagenomics doesn't tell you is it can't distinguish between those inactive and active members of the microbiome. So you can't be sure which microbes are merely present and which ones may be actually contributing to a particular phenotype, such as a disease state. So this is where metatranscriptomics has an advantage, as it can tell you which genes are transcriptionally active in a community at a given time. So if your question is what species are differing between a disease and a control sample, you may be interested in clinical diagnostics, where you're just interested in looking at the presence and absence of a pathogen. Targeted or shotgun sequencing would be fine for you. And these processes are generally the first step in studying the microbiome. However, if you want to characterize the genes expressed by the microbial community under different conditions, for example, metatranscriptomics can help you to unpack that. Okay, brilliant. And then do you have any tips for best practice when you're implementing each of these techniques? I think maybe we'll focus first on the kind of sample collection preservation side of things, but then we can go into the downstream processes later. Yeah, so from the very beginning, when you're designing your experiment, you should really be thinking about sample collection, preservation and storage. So we know that sample handling can introduce significant bias to the microbiome profile. For example, studies from Rob Knight's lab at UC San Diego have shown that certain species in fecal samples can grow disproportionately to others or bloom under room temperature storage. So particularly gamma proteobacteria such as E. coli. So you want to ensure that the sample is preserved so that the profile remains unchanged from the time of collection to the time of DNA isolation. One way that you can achieve this is by freezing a sample in liquid nitrogen to ensure that there's no further microbial growth. However, if you're going to be collecting samples from a remote field location, that's not always practical. So an alternative is to use a nucleic acid stabilizing solution like Zymo's DNA-RNA shield reagent. So this solution inactivates microbial growth along with the DNA and RNA degradation enzymes, preserving the sample profile so that samples can then be stored at ambient temperatures. So this one's particularly important for metatranscriptomic studies as RNA can be degraded more easily. There are also considerations on sample type and the amount of sample to collect. So if you're working with a high biomass fecal sample, you may only require a swap, whereas ocean samples or wastewater samples would require you to run large volumes of water through a filter and really trap and concentrate those organisms before DNA extraction. So then moving on to DNA extraction and library preparation, of course, you need to ensure that you're using the same reagents and kits for all of your DNA isolations. It's also really important to include controls in your studies. So negative controls in which you prepare a mock sample where you have water and you use all the same reagents you're using for your samples. And this can help you to point out if any of your reagents or collection devices are contaminated. And then you can use positive controls, such as the use of a mock microbial community. 
which can help us determine if we're efficiently extracting the DNA from our sample and preparing our library successfully. So at Zymo, we have several different standards which can be used for this purpose. One of the most popular ones is this cell suspension, which is a mix of eight bacterial and two yeast species. This one is particularly useful because we know that some microbe cells can be harder to lyse or break open to release that DNA. And this is in part due to the complexity of their cell walls. And so this standard contains a mix of some of the harder to lyse organisms and some of the easier to lyse ones in known quantities. So the idea is that you include this standard in your analysis, performing identical sample preparations, and then you can compare the resulting taxonomic profiles to ensure you've achieved the profile you would expect and can help you to reveal those biases in your extraction procedure. We've developed some free bioinformatics tools that researchers can input their raw fast key sequencing read files from the sequencing of this standard and it can give them this score to tell them how well their method was able to crack open those cells and release that DNA. Excellent and if there was one thing that you could ask for to improve the utility of microbiome profiling techniques or indeed our understanding of the microbiome what would it be? That's a really good question there are so many answers I could give to this but I think that something will really improve that will really improve the utility and the discoveries that can be made from the microbiome profiling will be in our ability to resolve taxa all the way down to the strain level using the sort of approaches we've discussed today. So we discussed that targeted approaches that only use parts of the 16S gene generally can resolve taxa to the genus and sometimes the species level and that shotgun sequencing can achieve species of resolution but the current shotgun sequencing approaches using short read NGS sequencing is extremely challenging bioinformatically to take this pool of sequencing reads from a metagenomic sample and then assemble the genomes of individual strains. And that's just simply because the reads are not long enough and sequencing aren't diverse enough to separate out these contiguous separate sequences from the reads. But we know that strain level variation can be highly important. So one really interesting example of where strain level resolution could be really illuminating is in the study of the vaginal microbiome. So the vaginal microbiome is quite fascinating because unlike other well-studied body sites like the gut, where microbiome diversity is generally thought to be favourable and promote health, the opposite is believed for the vaginal microbiome. And Jacques Ravel at the University of Maryland is really a pioneer in, in the vaginal microbiome field and has published a seminal study where they described how most women have microbiomes that are dominated by just one lactobacillus species. But there's this fifth group which has a more diverse microbiome comprised of these anaerobic microorganisms. And generally, this is referred to a bacterial vaginosis, or it's considered to be in a dysbiosis state because women in this more diverse group have an increased risk of reproductive disease and preterm birth. But not all women in this particular community state type exhibit any signs of being unhealthy. So it's been really difficult to unravel the association conclusively and increasingly evidence suggests that this strain level resolution may be necessary for us to really understand the link between this more diverse state and preterm birth. So in these seemingly low diversity profiles, there may be hidden strain level variation, which is extremely important. That's fascinating. I think I've seen a few things previously about the, or it's an emerging understanding of the impact that the vaginal microbiome can have on the development of our immunity as a baby passes through that canal and how in different people who have been born through cesarean, their later immune response to different things can be impacted by not having experienced that. 
and not encountered those that environment. So I wonder if that's something else as well, that those differences in the composition of that microbiome can also impact perhaps later on the development of immunity in those babies and things like that. Absolutely. It's a really interesting field of research. So yeah, babies that are generally born through C-section tend to have a microbiome that's more similar to the skin microbiome, Hmm. whereas those born through the birth canal have a microbiome that's similar to the vaginal and the gut microbiome. So yeah, it's really interesting to think of how a baby that's sterile within the womb then is born and has this really, you know, emerging and growing and changing microbiome within generally the first few years of their life whilst it stabilizes. So yeah, it's a really interesting and active area of research. Fantastic. Well, Annabelle, those are all of my questions. And have you got any last points that you'd like to make? I guess kind of moving forward, you know, if we were to look what you know, I mentioned in the last question about strain level resolution and kind of what the future looks like. I think, you know, sequencing and bioinformatic techniques are improving. And, and with things like long read sequencing technologies like PacBio HiFi, it's now possible to assemble complete genomes from metagenome samples, which helps us then to detect strains of the same species. So it's an exciting time. And as with many cases, whilst this technology is in place, we'll need to wait for costs to come down further, not only in the wet lab, but also in the dry lab, as these types of analysis are computationally expensive as well, before we can really go from a handful of applications to thousands of samples, which as well will be able to make the most discoveries. So yeah, it's an exciting time in microbiome research, definitely. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been really great speaking to you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode. It's been really great to hear about some of the best practices for using these techniques, but then also some of the really interesting applications that are happening both in animals and in humans in terms of vaginal microbiome, but then also the cow gut microbiomes and trying to reduce the environmental impacts of farming and agriculture. If you'd like to find out more about microbiome profiling, you can check out our InFocus with Zomo Research over on www.biotechniques.com. Thank you for listening and goodbye.